You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am really excited to be joined by James Brian Smith, the professor at or a professor at Friends University, the director of the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation, and the author of many different books, including the book Room of Marvels, which recently released an expanded edition. And what we're going to be talking about today. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Phil. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, you're someone whose work has been in our world for quite a while. I know you wrote The Good and Beautiful Life, Good and Beautiful God. I think there's one in Community as well, correct? Right. Good and Beautiful Community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when Room of Marvels came about, this is a fiction work. And I don't get to read a lot of fiction these days. I probably should read more, but jumped at the opportunity uh, for this book. And I'm really grateful I did. It was it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was different. For me, because it is fiction, and that's not my usual genre of writing. So, well, can you take us into then how you did get into writing a fiction book? Yeah, I yeah, I didn't I didn't set out to actually to write this book is the first thing that I want to say. So, I, I had written nonfiction um, for a number of years, um, but I had a series of of losses in my life. Uh, a, my good friend Rich Mullins. Uh, Christian singer, songwriter, people may know the song Awesome God or some of Step by Step, some of his songs. But Rich was a dear friend, lived with us for a couple of years, um, and he died tragically in a car accident in the fall of 97. And then in the spring of 98, our daughter Madeline, she was two years old. She was born with a chromosomal disorder and wasn't expected to live a long time. She did make it past her second birthday, but she died in the spring of 98. And so those two losses really, you know, were heavy on me. And then in um, 2000, uh, my, my mom passed. And those three deaths that close together really did a number on, my, on me and my soul. And I didn't know what to do. I, I had all this grief, and, but no place to, to put it or do anything with it. And so one afternoon... Um, this fits for Ruah space because I was I was making space for God in a time of prayer that I do consistently and have. And in a time of prayer and journaling, I started writing in my journal and this feeling of deep peace came over me. And all I was doing was describing something. I was describing what ultimately became a scene in the book. And uh, all I knew, Phil, was that I felt this peace. So uh, the next day, I sat down in my same chair in my same spot at the same time and started writing. It was like it was like a, uh, I was watching a movie. I picked up right where I was. I grabbed my pen and I just kind of closed my eyes and prayed. And I followed the lead of where it went. And after mm. a couple of weeks, I thought, I think this is a story. This is some. I'm following the story, and this is weird and strange. But I'm going to keep doing it because it was actually healing my heart and. Eventually I went, oh my God, I'm writing about heaven. I'm writing about mm. the next life, the, the, where these loved ones have gone. And, uh, and then I began wondering, I wonder if I'm going to see them. I wonder. And then I said, well, I'm not going to force this. So every day at the same time, I just kept doing this. And I didn't let anybody know that I was doing it. 
And eventually I did in my, in my dream, like, it's funny because the German, um, the German translation of the book, they did, Room of Marvels didn't work well for them in German, the sound. <laughs> okay. It's just called The Dream. Oh, <laughs> they call it The Dream. Yeah. Der Traum is any German listeners out there. So, um, so I, was having, I was having this dream and then um, I, I walked all the way through it and I was very healed by it. It wasn't like a novel at that point. It was just this extended dreamlike experience of stepping into heaven. And when I was done, I, I took it and I, I thought, well, I think I'll let my wife see it. So I let her read it. And she was very kind, you know, my, she's my wife. And it was about heaven and seeing in loved ones that we mo- both missed. And then um, my father was alive at the time and I let him read it. He was moved by it. But for the same reason, I wasn't sure if it was a, anyway, but I sent it to my agent, my literary agent, because I thought she's not going to lie. Like if there's if this is something that, that we need to turn into a book, I will. But if not, I don't need to. This was good for me. Yeah. And she read it and she said, I think this will be very help, helpful to a lot of people. So at that point, then I, I went back and kind of turned it into um, a novel that that had a beginning a middle and end and so forth but the dream is still the centerpiece of the book so that's what that's i i never set out to write a fiction book and and then it was a story because you're meeting all of these different people who have passed away ultimately you know you you change some of the names and and some of those things for the for the sake of the fiction but it had sort of a c.s lewis great divorce feel to it. I mean, they're obviously not going to, to hell, right? Or, or hell coming up to heaven, that type of thing. But you were meeting different people one after the other, and either you had impacted them or they had impacted you, and you have these give and take responses. What was sort of the hope then? When, when your literary agent read it and when you had been impacted by it, what was it about meeting these different characters that spoke to you healing and that might speak healing to others? Yeah, I mean, eventually the subtitle of the book emerged, which is, you know, the hope of heaven that heals the heart. And that, that for me was what it was about. I, all I knew, Phil, was that I, I experienced a a deep peace in the process of writing the book. Just this idea of, of trying to imagine what those who, who, the loved ones we have lost, what they, uh, what is what life is like for them? What what's what's happening? Will will I see them again? All of that was super healing for me. And so, I, I, I you know, if someone had said, "Hey, go write a book about grief," I, I wouldn't have known where to start. Hmm. But ultimately, the book is a lot about grief, and that's the the probably the number one thing I've heard from various readers through the years is that um, it, it helped people with their grief and. I think that's why some people actually give it to other people. Like once they read it, I've had a lot of people say, well, after I read it, I bought 10 copies and I've given it to various people over the years, all for the same reason. And that is just to help someone who's grieving a loss. Well, I'm sure it's healing for people to recognize maybe people from their own story that they've lost, you know, for, so for, for Madeline, who is your real daughter's name or, or Madison in the book, you know, that image of her dancing, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my wife and I, we, we had, we lost two children to miscarriage. And so not, not the same level because we never actually met the child and all that, but it did bring up something in me of, I, I hope they 
have some sort of existence with God, right? So even though it right. wasn't a one-to-one, it it did create the image in me of, hey, they 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 could be okay. Like that, and that to me is the good news of the book is and the, what the characters talk about, the story's not over. They're actually doing better. Yeah. Absolutely. And 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 that's one of the things that I think the book does because it is fiction. It allows for the kind of experience that you had, though, where you look at your own life and say, how does this intersect? Whereas, and I'm not trying to be mean, but a lot of books on grief are like seven steps to healing your grief or something. And they're a little bit kind of coming at you with, you need to do this to get over your grief problem, or I'm going to fix you if you read this. What what fiction does is it, it, it doesn't force anything. It allows you to look at it and read it and say, wow, I wonder how that intersects with my life. And I think it's just such, it's such a much more gentle way of, of approaching the subject. Yeah. And I think there's a number of encouraging components to it that don't remove the need to grieve. Because I think, especially in Christian circles, there's sometimes a sense of, oh yeah, they're just with God, they're in heaven, you should just be okay. And I don't feel like that's at all what you're saying at any point of not to grieve. But I think there's an invitation to a further perspective that, you know, God allowed you to have this experience, right? Or the character in the book was having this experience to know that they're okay. It sort of gave a new perspective on the grief rather than removing it. Absolutely. And that's the difference. Um, You know, a friend of mine, she, when she was 10 when her mother died and her father said to she and her siblings, they were all young. Um, I think they, maybe she was started to cry like at the funeral and, and the father said, no crying. Your, your mother's in heaven, you, you know, and really did a number on, on all three kids that they weren't allowed to grieve. I mean, this is their mother, you know, and some of that, that Christian teaching of, well, they're in heaven, so we should all be happy. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I, it's it's a loss. It's a it's a deep pain. People that we love, when they pass on, um, we live forever. We, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that 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 gap never goes away. I mean, Madeline died 23 years ago. I that that is a it's a scar in my life that has healed in many ways, but it's still there, you know? So grief, you're right. I appreciate the way you phrased that question. Grief is something we want to address, but, you know, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we don't grieve like those who who have no hope. You know what Paul's saying? We do grieve. We do grieve, but we have hope. That's the the difference between those who have a, a Christian worldview, a view of the cosmos as Jesus did, that death is not the end. And we believe in the restoration of all things. So that's where hope comes from, because hope is confidence in a good future. Yeah, we don't have to shove it down or ignore it. And we also don't have to let it end everything. I believe it was Dallas Willard wrote the foreword, correct, to the book. Right. And I think he talked about the need to realize or enter into the fact that our eternal existence, which of course begins now, we're not just talking about something after we die, but to believe in the reality of a life that continues after our death here, that that, that really does change things though. And, and, and he seemed to be challenging us to, to say, do we actually believe that, right? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, I love what, what Dallas, I think he opens the forward by saying, look, this is one of the hardest things for, for Christians to deal with is really trusting in this. And Jesus comes with a completely different view of the world uh, than, than we have, where he was sort of shockingly casual about death. Like it didn't, it didn't mm. throw Jesus at all. Um, and, and that's hard for us because we, we tend to be so overwhelmed by it. And, um, you know, Dallas is pushing us to say, if we saw the world as Jesus did, if we knew the universe, the cosmos, how, how this world has, is made, um, we would have that confidence that death is not the final word, but it still is hard. We like to have control, right? Yes. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's one thing I really appreciated. At one part of the story, the main character had to ride the horse that was that he was riding. He had to ride backwards, so he couldn't see where he was going. And he had this wand. Could you take us into the wand a little bit? Yeah, that was a fascinating scene, uh, you know, in the book when uh, Tim meets uh, Wayne, who's the Rich Mullins character, and... Um, you know, so many of the conversations that Rich and I had in, in our, our time together, we talked a lot about control. We talked a lot about grace and how we surrender and, and trust in God and how hard that is. And so when his character, you know, tells Tim about the saddlebags, uh, I remember going, what's going to be in the saddlebags? Because I mean, I literally didn't know. I thought the saddlebags have something in it. I wonder what's in it. And then so when the magic wand comes out that, you know, a wand represents control. Like we would love to be able to have something that wave it and things work out exactly as we want. So the wand is a metaphor for control. And so there's, you know, Tim's on the horse and he's having to deal with that. Well, how, how to walk backwards. I mean, you have to trust, you have to not know where you're going. And so it, that's the idea of, of breaking that, that incessant need to be in control that frankly rules most of our lives. Yeah. And ultimately he, someone was able to take it and he, he didn't have to carry that anymore. Can, can you bring it to your own story at all? Did you feel when you, when, when you lost your, your friend, your mother, your daughter, I'm sensing because this story was sort of your story, were, were you feeling like you had to hold on to control and did you end up moving to trust? Was there a process for you that you can remember? Yeah, absolutely. That was the idea. You know, I think that uh, our our vision of reality is so crucial. I, I write in my other books a lot about our narratives. Our, our narratives, um, our 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 stories, uh, our ideas put in in story form are our narratives. And as we we see them, you know, one of the biggest ones is. Um, how do I control all this? How do I make this work? What do I have to do? And of course, the, the big Christian narrative is about grace. Um, it's, you know, learning how to, um, to live in trust. And that's why I love your tagline for your podcast about making space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that's a relationships require that kind of trust. So for me, what happened to me, Phil, in the writing of the book was I began to trust God more to trust and say, he's right about this. The, the thing, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's right about that. I can trust him in that. Um, and I think that's at the center of it. And it seems then that trust 
doesn't require God doing the thing that we want to have happen, right? I think some people, as we are walking through our faith, and I don't mean some people like you out there, me too, when we think trust, it's okay, if I turn this over to you, God, then I trust it's all going to work out and it'll be okay. So almost like we're giving up control, but really we're wanting to control God then to do what we want. But to me, I feel like the trust is coming to a place where it's recognizing that one, it's not the end of the story, right? But also that God is with us in it. I think that's the the most beautiful part of it. God is with us in it and God can take whatever we're feeling or experiencing and doesn't run away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Is that we, I think we, we boot up this narrative that we've got to do everything the right way for, in order for God to be with us. But the dominant narrative of our faith is that we merit nothing. We don't, God is with us, not because of anything we've done, but because God loves us and wants to be with us. And frankly, I think that's, that's, what's the most profound is, is knowing that this God who became human in the form of Jesus experienced everything that we feel um, and and has faced everything that we face and and can redeem it because because it's God. God is the one who became human and did that. So that, that solidarity that God has with us in our abandonment, our grief, our loss, our sense of alienation, that to me is so encouraging. Yeah. The tomb is empty, right? So we, we may not totally experience that every day, but we, but we know that that tomb is empty. So this, this journey that, that Tim was going on and you were going on was ultimately toward this room of marvels. And I didn't know what to expect when I was reading the book. I'm like, what is this room of marvels going to be? I was, I was thinking, you know, St. Teresa interior castle, or, you know, where, where are we going or, or going deeper like CS Lewis. Right. And ultimately when you, when you reach the room of marvels, there's like a screen with these little pictures. Can you describe that for you, like the experience for you and and what the Room of Marvels is? Yeah. So I guess we're doing spoiler alert right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right. Spoiler alert. If you don't. Yeah, that's that's very true. Go read the book and then come back and right here. Hit play. (laughs) Hit pause right here. That's right. And come back. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I, I was the same way when I was writing it. Again, it's so weird to write a book where you have no idea where this is going. Uh, and I too wondered that because there was mentioned earlier in the book about the Room of Marbles. And um, and I've also read Teresa's Interior Castle. And so I'm thinking the same thing about a journey toward this inner room that's going to be um, ultimately where God is mm-hmm. or Teresa, right? But um, if you know that book, but... In this case, the big the big surprise was that this room of marbles has to do with the people that we've impacted in in our lives, and um, that was kind of a big aha for me to think. I mean, I think the big takeaway from that was the lives that we live now they matter. They they do. That was the biggest thing is to say. Even even some small act of kindness that we may have done when we were. 13 years old. That mattered, right? There was a, there's an, an eternal echo. I like that phrase that, that those things that we do for good in this life, and it's not about works. It's not about earning, you know, a, one person sent me a, a, an angry note you know, about the book saying, 
got to the room of marbles and thought, oh, so this is all about salvation by works. And I was like, oh, no. I think you missed the point. Yeah. The point is, is it isn't about that. It's about everything's grace, but just this recognition that the things that we do in this life have, they continue on, they continue on. That's why I like eternal echoes, that idea. And I'll tell you what's really sweet is um, many, many people have uh, written to me and talked about how they it's made them think about their room of marbles. Like what, what, what would, what, what's that going to look like for them? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just think it's a very profound thing because sometimes we think these lives that we're living don't really matter. You know, we're just, we're saved by grace through faith. We're awful sinners. Maybe we'll get to go to heaven when we die, if we can make the cut, but no, it, every, every day matters. And it's not karma. You know, it's not some sort of, weird thing i'm getting repaid for my good deeds here it's just a matter of recognizing that that what we do matters i guess i said it already well i think that's a beautiful image and an invitation because the more people i talk to that's one of the common threads that seems to come up is do i have significance am i am i doing something that matters and what I love about this then is it's not only tied to your career or what you do with, you know, it's, it's even the small things that you can do for a neighbor and things that affect you can continue to have, even if you've had loss, you know, your ability to love and to affect others, sort of like Yogi Berra, right? It, it ain't over till it's over. Like we, <laughs> we continue to have these opportunities to, to love and serve others, even if we're not super famous, right? I mean, in a world where on social media, it seems like unless you have a million followers, you're, you're meaningless. Actually, you have incredible meaning. That's a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, our, our system is kind of upside down, isn't it? The way we view success and celebrity and fame and so forth. It's those little acts, often unnoticed hidden acts. I mean, I think that was the thing that, that the main character gets surprised in the Room of Marvels to see people that he impacted that he had no idea. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I think that's what's kind of a, a fascinating to think, thing to think about is what would that be like to, 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 to come? Because, you know, it says we're going to be there, what, when we've been there 10,000 years. So we got time. We got time <laughs> in the next life. And I think, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to do? What are we going to? And I think we'll still be creative and doing things, but we'll also have a lot of time to look back and say, what did this life matter? Like, what did... And I, I think that that image of maybe coming face to face with somebody that we did some good toward them or the other way for us to, to come face to face with somebody that did good to me to think about who's, you know, who, whose room am I going to be in that I can be there and say, Hey, thank you. Thank you for the blessing that you were to me. So I love that image. Yeah. <laughs> so I, like I said, I didn't see it coming when I was writing it. But in the end, I went, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I, I think that's awesome. So, okay. So that is one thing I want to talk about then. So you've mentioned a couple times, and I think this is really important. And I think there's something great there that you didn't know what was going to be in the saddlebags. You yourself didn't know what the room of marvels would be. I think we've entered into the realm of prayer and meditation and connection to the spirit and even um, imaginative prayer, which I think some people confuse imagination with fiction, but imaginations are creative ability to see just beyond what we're, you know, like the table and chair I'm sitting on to see beyond. 
Can you take us into that experience a little bit? Because I think it must have come from years of having a practice where you were able to enter into it rather than with fear or skepticism to accept oh, this is this is an important encounter that I can that I can accept as a good thing, not something to fear. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you asked. You know, and I, I no one I've been on some radio things and talked about the book before. So Phil, you're the first person who's ever asked this. So that's good. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Let's um, do it. <laughs> well no, I mean I, well it's fitting with what your you know your podcast is about about space and with right. God. But you know when I was a college student, I was a real new Christian and I was studying my, my professor was a guy named Richard Foster who wrote Celebration of Discipline. So um, and I didn't, you know, I, I had no idea what that life was. So I'm, st- I'm learning from this guy about solitude and silence and prayer and journaling and reading these deep uh, writers of the faith. You may mentioned Teresa of Avila, John Wesley, John Calvin, St. Augustine, um, Evelyn Underhill. I'm reading all these, these people who are, frankly, I don't know if this is a good word or bad word, but they're mystical people, right? So to me, oh, yeah. the word mysticism is not a bad word. It's I, I see it in the very best light. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm doing practices of interacting with the spiritual realm. What your podcast, you know, I'm, I'm a college student learning how to make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in my life. And that continued on. It continued on for me, fortunately, um, when I was in seminary. I, I wrote Henry Nowen, the great contemplative writer. I wrote him about where to go to school to continue growing, and he gave me some advice. And so my whole life had been characterized by really what your podcast is about. And so it wasn't weird to me to every day at four o'clock in the afternoon to sit down with my journal and with a pen and a candle and pray and be in that space and then listen and see where it went. I also wasn't scared. You know, some, some people were like, well, meditation, you're opening up to the, to the, you know, demonic or whatever. I knew how to pray protection. I knew how to listen to the spirit. So for me, it was very natural to, to do that for others. They may think that that's weird what he did, but for me, it was very fitting to, to say, I'm going to set aside this, this next hour to be in prayer and, silence and listen and see where this goes. And also, I want to say a quick word about this, to trust in the imagination. Because, you know, think about um, uh, St. Ignatius, the Ignatian exercises, which have been really quite profound for people for centuries. But the Ignatian exercises are are largely using our imagination. Um, you're, You're sort of delving deeply into thinking about I mean, I don't know if you know the Ignatian exercises, but the first thing starts you off in hell, which isn't too good. Oh. But, you know, it gets you thinking about, you know, what what is life going to be like? And so the use, I guess what I'm getting at, the use of the imagination in spiritual formation was not foreign to me either. Yeah. So I know it was only a couple of years ago that you were in college with Richard Foster, right? So can, can we go back to that? Can we go back to that time? Um, yeah. So you've been on this journey now for a while and you're very comfortable with it. Did you have any pushback at first or did you have any um, experiences you can remember where it's like, man, I'm doing this wrong or it's not working. How did you work through that? What sort of, was there a moment where things started to click? Well, I, I, my, my temperament is, is more of an introvert and 
um, the mystical side is something I've never really been afraid of. So I was, it was, it was really more natural to me than say, like my wife, for example, is an extrovert and is, is more of a, of a doer. So her faith is more in action, in, in engagement and fellowship and that sort of thing. So for me, solitude and silence and prayer were, was pretty natural for me. Uh, so fairly early on, I, I have to say fairly early on, I think it was something that, that I really got a lot out of. But one of the things that you'll learn in spiritual formation is that you do, you can eventually run into what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, where um, God needs to teach you not, not to be so interested in the spiritual fuzzies, you know, in those, uh, he called it luxury, spiritual luxury, which is that where you're just seeking the feelings, the contemplative mm-hmm. inner life feelings. And, um, and that's, that's why people go through dark nights. And I did, I went through a dark night actually when I was in seminary and that was a, that was a difficult period for me uh, where I, I actually went on a five day silent retreat and, and that experience was, was really um, the basis of what happens in the book, because in the book, uh, the main character begins by going on a five-day silent retreat. So what, what happened to me in my dark night of the soul, in my own actual real life, became the setup for the book. Yeah, I really appreciated that aspect because that was obviously you talked about in the and that was added later. And and part of me was wondering when the book started, if the room of marvels was his cell, like because I didn't know the whole journey and everything that he was going to go on. And part of me, you know, not to, you know, maybe we're getting a little into like fan fiction here or something, but I, I do think that it could be described in that way because the silence and the solitude of that space is what allowed him to become aware and open to this journey happening. So can you talk about why silence and solitude was what you chose? Because of course you could have chosen this to happen anywhere, any, anyhow, right? But it was in silence and solitude. Can you take us into that a little? Yeah, that, because again, in my own journey, I, I hit a place where I, you know, I'm in seminary and it was a pretty intense academic seminary that I attended. And so I was really, I was working hard and, and but, but the faith had, had my, my life with God had begun to really suffer because I was, I was studying about God, but not being with God. And I was learning yeah. all the Greek, Hebrew theology, church history. I was studying all these things and, um, and yet I was drifting from God. So when a friend, um, said to me, Hey, during the break, I'm going to go to this silent retreat, um, this monastery up in the Northeast, an Episcopal monastery. He said, I'm going to go there for a five day silent retreat. You want to go with me? And, um, part of me was really drawn to it. Part of me was scared to death because I thought, well, five days of silence, like that's a lot. (laughs) That's intense. And, um, he's like, well, but you get a spiritual director and you know, you get to meet with the director and that's, so I went and my own experience was, uh, a complete surrender is the only way I can can put it. And what happened in the in my real experience was that the spiritual director had me read the the story Mary's story of the Annunciation, where she's told she's going to bear the Son of God. Mm-hmm. It's this really challenging story, and 
when you think about what that would have been like for a young girl to hear that news. Yeah. But when, when Mary says, let it be unto me, that those words, you know, the, before the Beatles got a hold of let it be, um, but let it be, I mean, that's the surrender. Like I will, I will trust whatever God's. And for me, that just broke me and brought me back into this relationship with God. So that experience in that Episcopal monastery then was, was, was kind of how I felt about writing the book. It was for me, it was this, uh, go to this place where you kind of have to come to the end of yourself mm-hmm. and really let go. And for, and that's what Tim, the main character needs to do. He's, he's lost. His wife is saying, you need to do something. And Tim wisely chooses to, you know, to go to that place. And then, then he's, he's in a place where he can have the dream. Yeah. Things happen when we enter silence, it seems, and they can be, it can be difficult at first and maybe not everyone can do five days away, but I would encourage people to enter into as much silence and make, if you can do five days, go do it. Right. But to, to create those spaces, because I think that that's fertile ground to experience the Holy spirit, as you said, to experience the end of yourself to um, yeah. Seek and you will find, right. So that's right. That's definitely a vital practice for us. Do you still have a consistent daily practice or is it, how do you sort of think of your practices? Is it daily, weekly, little bits here and there? What's that like for you? Yeah. I mean, for, for years, I'm a Methodist. So I like to have a method. Uh, for years, I, and, I, and I got to the point where I, I think I let my method rule my life, where I was more interested in the method than being with God. So uh, my practices are, I, I have a, a lot of practices that I do, times of solitude, silence, meditation, prayer, study, journal writing, fellowship, worship. Uh, all of those practices are a part of the rhythm of my week. But I don't have like at this day, at this time, I, I did at a certain point in my journey. And I'm glad for that because I think some, sometimes we need that, that intense sort of consistent structure. Um, but but for, for me, I think there was a point in which I thought, no, I don't think that's helpful for me. So, um, you know, today I was able to get 30 minutes on the back porch, uh, just looking at nature, being quiet, being still. Uh, trying to slow down my mind and be present. And, um, and then, you know, I had, had a wonderful meeting and prayer time with, with a group of Christians. And then I taught a class, which is its own spiritual formation practice to, to lead other people. And so I guess I'd think of that as a lot of rhythms that, that are a part of my life, but not any one rigid practice. Well, I like what you mentioned there too. It, 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 to me, gets to Paul's idea sort of a praying without ceasing that yes, there are specific practices, but you also seem open to encountering the Holy Spirit in practices that we may not think of as, oh, this is a meditation or, or spiritual practice, but welcoming God and experiencing God in just the normal activities of life. Right. Yeah. And, and that's how it is. I mean, it, I, had, I had a fairly narrow view like I said, I studied with Richard Foster and he has 12 disciplines in celebration of discipline, his classic book. So for a long time, I thought, well, these are the 12. You just do these 12 all the time, yeah. over and over and over. Uh, and then I'd read somebody else and say, oh, John Wesley did that. I, sh- I need to do that. Or so-and-so does this practice. I need to do that. Um, but eventually, and so I like the word rhythm. There's a, there, is, there is a pattern to it. It's not completely random. I, you have to be intentional yeah. and say, you know, I'm going to do this. I mean, I know 
on Sunday, I'm going to be in church. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Where else would I want to be? I want to be in, with the body of Christ. I want to hear the scriptures read. I want to hear someone preach. I want to hear, I want to sing our songs. I have to be intentional. I don't just randomly drift into church. Like it's in my calendar, you know? Right. And, uh, and so I think of that, the practices, I, I, you need to be intentional, but not legalistic. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good word. Well, as we're coming close to the end of our time here, I guess I would just ask you, is there a word or an encouragement that you could offer to people who are currently going through, maybe they aren't 20 years removed, maybe they are 20 years removed and it still feels like an open wound, or they've recently gone through a lot of grief and loss. Do you have a word that you might offer up to them? Yeah, I think the word um, the word that was given to me that was very sustaining is just this idea that God has you. That would be my word. God has you. God has always had you. Uh, you, you may have run away. There are times I try to turn and run away. But God has us. And from day to day and night to night, God has us. And though we may feel alone, um, he's with us. And in very deep ways, in those times of grief, when I really thought I'd been abandoned by God, I would later realize he had me. He had me that whole time. And that was the word that sustained me. Amen. I love that. Jim, where can people find you to go deeper with your work or find out what you're up to? Yeah, I, well, I have a podcast um, like you do. I, my podcast is called Things Above. And uh, it comes from Colossians 3, where Paul said, set your minds on things above. And uh, for me, it's, that's important. I, I think a lot about uh, mind discipleship. I want to disciple my mind. So that's what the podcast is for. It's about how to disciple our minds. And then I work at the at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, but uh, we have a, an organization called the Apprentice Institute, the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. And we want to learn how to be apprentices of Jesus. And we have an annual conference called the Apprentice Gathering. Um, people come from all around the world to that every year. It's in late September. And uh, so the podcast and the, and the annual gathering are things that ways people can connect. And, and then, you know, I've written 12 books too. So, well, I will make sure we will put links to that in the description below. So whatever platform you're on, if you check out the show notes, you can find a link to room of Marvels and to the other things that Jim is up to. I highly recommend you go check it out. Hey, thank you so much for this time today. It's, it, this is a, an interview I've been looking forward to for a long time. So this was an honor and a blessing. I, I really appreciate it. It was an honor and a blessing for me too, Phil. Bless you and all you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just want to thank you again for joining us in this episode today. I do highly recommend checking out those resources in the links below. And then if you are looking for ways to go deeper with things that we discussed in this episode, especially when it comes to spiritual formation practices and hearing God in your life, I do offer one-on-one -on -one spiritual coaching or spiritual direction, helping you dig into your story as we look for where God has spoken in your past, where God may be speaking in the present, and how you can create space to hear the voice of God even better. So if that's of interest to you, I also have a link to that where you can find more information in the description below. Thanks again for being with us here today, friends. Until next time, grace and peace be with you. Mm -hmm.